I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Farm Equipment. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Farm Equipment for sponsoring today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Though Hickory, North Carolina no-tiller Russell Hedrick has only been farming for about a decade, he's been making a name for himself from the very beginning with his unconventional approach to practices, breaking yield records, and marketing his grain. Not one to sit idle, Hedrick is always trying new things and seems to be pretty good at generating profits while doing them. For this No-Till Farmer podcast, we caught up with Russell to hear about his latest venture, a mobile grain milling operation he launched alongside partners Liz Haney and Sarah Barbel called Regen Mills. Join in to hear how the trio sees this as a way to return more profit to farmers, how their mobile grain mills supports that goal, the requirements and expectations they have for farmers signing onto the program, likely financial returns, and more. As I understand it, you weren't born into farming, so I wanted to have you just give us a little bit of background on how you got started farming and how no-till and other regenerative practices became a focus for you so early on. Okay. So uh, I'm Russell Hedrick. I'm a first-generation farmer in the foothills of the Carolinas. We started farming in 2012 with 30 acres and really had no idea what regenerative agriculture was. At at that point in time, the the big buzzword was sustainability and got really introduced to the right people at the right time learned about cover crops and that was kind of our our first you know step into the the regenerative pool and uh, use that for winter erosion and and winter weed suppression and had no idea of, of all the the massive benefits and implications that could come from this path and you know over the years um, crazy people like Ray Archuleta really spent a lot of time mentoring tons of farmers and we were just really lucky to have him, you know, to give us a lot of knowledge and information and then, you know, meeting other farmers. And I would say that's one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest impacts on our journey has been a peer network of guys like Gabe Brown and Curtis Fur, David Brandt, um, you know, Nathan Louder, you know, people even in my home state that were, you know, trying to figure out exactly where this journey was going and, and shared a lot of the, the benefits that they saw and things that worked for them. And they also shared, you know, a lot of their failures. And, and that is one of the reasons I believe in 10 years, we've been able to change our operation is, you know, really looking at having other people willing to share their failures um, so that we could, you know, try to, stay away from a lot of those headaches and and really just try to maximize what we were doing on our on our farm yeah and obviously or i'm I'm assuming that your operation has grown a lot since that 30 acre start yeah we've we've added acres some years we've subtracted other years we we really fight with um 
urban development with housing and solar panels going up everywhere, just like a lot of farmers in a lot of other states. Uh, it, it fluctuates from year to year, but um, we've grown in acres and um, we've grown in our enterprises where, you know, trying to maximize the, the return on investment for the for the work we're doing on the farm and really having multiple streams of income so that if we have a bad year with one, then, you know, we're able to make up with that with, with all the other things that we're doing. So it really is a risk assessment that, you know, we looked at and, and it was worth adding those, those additional enterprises. Sure. And so just give us a real quick uh, synopsis of maybe the crops that you grow. And then I, I believe you, uh, you have livestock. Yeah. So we, we started, you know, traditional farming, traded corn, um, I have no issue with farmers that that use traded varieties. It is a tool for farmers to use, but it's one that we noticed with regenerative practices as the years went on that we we didn't need that. We didn't need to pay for the traits and the benefits and um, all the technology. So we started growing non-GMO hybrids at first, and then we went to uh, open pollinated corns as well. So we're we're all non-GMO now on our grain side, and we grow um, several different varieties of open-pollinated corn. Uh, we grow several small grains, and we also integrated livestock, um, which was a massive learning curve. And we had sheep, and then the wind would blow, and sheep died, so we got out of the sheep business, and uh, we've predominantly just focused on cattle and, and uh, heritage breed hogs. Okay, and so the direct marketing that you're talking about and the different enterprises kind of, I mean, you kind of jumped into that pretty early. Why don't you just tell us what got you interested in doing that? Um, and what crops and products are you direct marketing? So we started in 2013. Um, we partnered with Foothills Distillery at that time we were, you know, just producing moonshine. Uh, that was kind of like the moonshine phase of the, the Appalachian Mountains in the southeast area. And then, you know, Zach and Tim came up with the idea that, you know, it would be awesome to produce a bourbon. So came up with a, you know, bourbon recipe that they used there at the distillery. We modified some of the grains we were growing at that time to, to meet that need and started producing the, the first bourbon in North Carolina since Prohibition. Then we started um, looking at these open pollinated corns. Um, me and another farmer friend of mine, Zeb Winslow, started growing um, bloody butcher corn. And, you know, one day Zeb was like, I, I bet you these would make fabulous grits. And so we decided to start marketing grits and cornmeal and, you know, started that, you know, very, very organically um, cheap bags, as cheap as we could get them, sold them on Facebook, Twitter, went to farm shows and, and offered them for sale farm shows. And, and everybody tended to agree that these older heirloom type varieties were really flavorful compared to what, you know, some of what the, the modern hybrids would be. We do a lot with, uh, with alcohol. We, um, we've worked with uh, Riverbend Malt House in Asheville, Carolina Malt House, um, a little bit east of us. And we do um, malting grains uh, where we work with them for different quality malting grains for some of the the breweries that they work with. And then we started working with Sierra Nevada up in Asheville and we've had a relationship with them now for several years and try to work on new grains and old grains and, and about everything in between. So it's kind of fun to see that we produce a product that ultimately people can have a good time with, whether it's a uh, food or beverage consumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so 
I'm a northern girl, not a, not a grit eater, really. So what kind of characteristics make for good grits? What are you looking for in a corn hybrid that makes for good grits? You know, most of the time when people from the north say that they haven't had good grits, they're mostly because they're eating like five-minute instant grits. And, <laughs> you know, the joke in the south is if you make grits quicker than about 20 to 30 minutes, you, you probably didn't have good grits. You know, these old heirloom type grits that, you know, they're stone ground on a, on a pink granite mill and some of them are still hand sifted to this day. Uh, we don't do that just because of time constraints, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's just a flavorful, sweet, um, you don't have to just doctor it up with tons of butter and, you know, some people put sugar, bacon, um, you can put a little salt and pepper in them and they're delicious like they are, but if you want you know, if you want a little more flavor, you know, put some bacon bits in it or, um, you know, something to give it a little bit of a spice. But just the flavor profile, they're not chewy. They're it's it's just a just a good warm breakfast is, is how I would describe these these open pollinated grits. Uh-huh. OK, interesting. All right. Um, so now your work with direct marketing has now led you to launch a new project, and that's called Regen Mills. Um so I wanted you to tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, this summer after being cooped up for a whole year because of the pandemic, finally back out on the road, getting to go to field days and conferences and see friends and other farmers and myself, Liz Haney and Sarah Varble, um, we've all partnered together at, at Soil Region and our focus at Soil Region is farmer first. Um, there's there's so many people, you know, if you've heard me talk at a conference, you've probably heard the phrase, you know, a lot of people farm the farmer. At the end of the day, it's, it's just not a, a lot of profit generated on the farms. Uh, there's just so much overhead and, and so much input cost. And so we wanted to focus on building a new company that would instead of building 18 or 20 different websites and, you know, trying to replicate something so many times, we wanted to build a community effort to where farmers could come together, join a community and, you know, build a nice website, build an e-commerce site where we can get into, you know, online sales, retail sales. That's been up since the pandemic hit and really have a lot of voices for the same reasons because regenerative farmers, I would, I would call us community we typically help each other we share we share knowledge we share seed and you know that's how we came up with the idea for region meals farmers that do grow different commodity crops were having to truck the crops so far that the small premium that we were being offered really got eaten up mostly in freight so there really wasn't a huge benefit to farmers so instead of trucking grains all over the u.s we we decided that um, we could actually build a meal um, that would be mobile and could travel from farm to farm. And so we can preserve the identity of that grain um, when a customer buys our, you know, say grit bag on the back of that bag, it'll actually have the farmer's name and information. They can go on our website, actually click on that farmer's name on our map and see a biography or a video of that farmer planting that crop, harvesting that crop and really try to connect the food that people eat to the person that actually grew it. That's really cool. So would you consider this a co-op or how is it different than, than a co-op? I mean, I really, everybody, you know, that has been a very big ass question and I'm not really, every time I hear a farmer talk about a co-op, it's just uh, it's not in a very good light. 
we're not taking money from the farmer. So we put this company together and, you know, it does have an overhead cost of operating the company, but it's very minimal. And if the farmer makes a direct sale, we're not taking any money from the farmer's pocket. They are making all of that direct sale money to the farm. And the only time that we are taking money from the farmer is essentially it's, it's minimal fees that, you know, selling online and selling through the e-commerce site, you know, we, we do have associated fees with using that, that technology. So we do have to charge to cover that, but, you know, we're trying to maximize the, you know, the, the benefit that a farmer is going to see in the amount of money they receive for their crop. So just sort of walk us through the process of what a farmer could expect in terms of how does the whole thing work once they sign up? So if a farmer wanted to um, be a part of Regen Meals, um, you know, if they wanted to just simply have Regen Meals come out and say, grind grains for them because we're in the area. Um, essentially, we have a farmer application process that they fill out an application and um, send that in to us. We review the application. You know, it's kind of easier when you when you know the farmers that are involved in it. If it is somebody we don't know, the, the application process will be a little more intense or involved because we're we're not grinding standard commodities. Um, bare minimum, it's non-GMO, but we're really focusing on the the heritage type grains. And you know, farmers would need to keep their seed tags to you know verify what seed they planted. We do have FDA regulations and, and food safety regulations that we do follow because we don't want to make anybody sick. We want this to be an awesome product for people to consume. So, you know, farmers have to send off a grain sample and we're testing for, you know, vomitoxin or, you know, Don levels in the small grain. We're testing for aflatoxin in the corn um, and all these standards are set by FDA. Um, so there's no wiggle room for us. Like it, it really farmers are really going to have to do good practices and and keep grain quality up for us to be able to mill this product. And once they pass those two steps, um, we have a form that the farmer uh, just fills out, lets us know, you know, what grains they have, what quantity they have. Um, you know, is there a preferred time that they would like the meal to be there? Do they have their own bags? Do they want to use our bags? Um, and so we've set up, you know, a simple schedule of how much it costs to meal and then how much it costs, you know, essentially we're, we're not even making money on the bags. We're essentially, we're charging the farmer what it costs us to get the bag to put the product in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is one of the great things about this, this effort of all of us coming together is the scale of economics have really made this process a lot cheaper than what it would have been you know, one, one individual farmer trying to buy 50,000 or a hundred thousand bags at a time. Okay. So they get on your schedule to mill their grain and they have to have a minimum amount, I, I believe, right? We're, we're trying to keep it where it's cost effective for us to move the meal. Um, we're trying to focus on at least a 2000 pound minimum. We're not saying that that has to be a single grain type, but, you know, say they had a thousand pounds of Jimmy red corn and a thousand pounds of blue Hopi corn or some type of wheat that they want to, you know, milled into flour. Um, we're trying to keep that, you know, at, a, at, at least 2000 pounds of grinding. And we're also working with farmers to where two of my friends out in Kansas, they probably live five miles apart. So if we set the meal up at one or the other's location, 
and one of them wants to be able to say 500 pounds. They can just bring that 500 pounds in a super sack, pro box, gravity wagon. Um, there's several different um, options that we have to getting grain to the mill, and they can bring that a short distance. And then we don't have to tear down set up. And we're trying to make this as easy as we can. Um, but also, like I said, we do have to cover costs. So you, you're going to grind their grain and package it directly into bags for them? Yes, we, we have a bagging system that is on the trailer. If the farmer wants us to bag it, um, our, our typical bags will be two and five pound bags. Um, we can do 25, 50. We are actually working with some larger companies right now in negotiations to where they actually want super sack quantities. So we're, we're trying to market this to where we can also move larger quantities. And if the farmer wants us to bag it, we can definitely do that. Our bagging system is, is relatively low tech and cost effective to where a farmer could, could easily afford one of these baggers um, for, for their location should they want to have a larger amount of, of milled grain there and, and give them more quantity to be able to sell and package how they need. Okay. So there's a lot of flexibility, it sounds like, in terms of whether they end up with individual bags or they end up with a big quantity of milled grain or they let you take the milled grain and you guys sell it. There's different options, right? Absolutely. And that's one of the, the key benefits, I think, of this group of farmers. Um, you know, 20 voices are a lot louder than one. And I think all of us collectively, you know, getting brand awareness, um, getting our brand out there, each one of us can grow different products. Um, Deanna at Guardian Grain up in, in the Dakotas, you know, she's growing a, a lot of the old ancient wheat varieties um, that like a more air dried, you know, environment than what I could probably grow in North Carolina. So I think us being spread out across the country lets us maximize what crops grow better in our areas and let us focus on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were just talking about, you, uh, you, you might mill different varieties in a single visit. So is there a certain cleaning regimen that goes on in between milling, uh, operations? <laughs> Yes. I, I say this kind of, I'm, I'm, I know you can't see me, but I'm smiling and kind of even smirking right now because I really like to meal and I like the mechanical parts of this. I hate the food safety parts of this. We have this awesome person named Sarah Varble. That is her forte. Um, she is literally making notebooks of how to clean out, how to adjust, how to make sure that we're not getting any cross contaminations, um, making sure that all this is safe. And for people who have never done this before, and probably most farmers or consumers have not, it is probably one of the most boring things in my entire life to have to go through this process. You know, for me to have to sit there on a Zoom meeting for an hour and hear about food safety and clean out procedures and stuff like that, it is worse than my worst day of farming. We'll get back to Russell Hedrick in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for supporting today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Russell Hedrick. 
And then I wanted to just talk a little bit about the, the mechanics of the milling. So you show up or somebody shows up with this mill. It's in a trailer. And also, who, who's showing up? Is it Russell Hedrick who shows up or somebody else? I know a little bit about milling. I am still in the learning process. And we do have a person who is a certified master miller. He has ran um, large commercial uh, milling facilities in Oregon. Um, he went through Kansas State University's milling program and graduated from it. And so the things that I'm learning are directly coming from him. He's he's an awesome asset and, and has, you know, the moment we called him, he was gung-ho for this. He was like, farmers doing this? Absolutely. I'm in. Um, so right now we're trying to train at least four to five people. Um, and, you know, that way it's not so heavily reliant on one person. Because you never know, somebody could get sick or a family emergency, and we want to be able to continue this process. So, like, Liz is going to learn how to meal, Sarah's going to learn how to meal, and, and several people in different locations will know how to run this process and this operation. So, there, there will be, I think our milling is probably going to be a little bit slower as far as volume in the beginning, just because we want to make sure we're doing it right and everybody learns. Mm-hmm. But our ultimate goal is to continue to build this instead of having you know, this trailer is a, a standard car haul enclosed trailer, eight feet wide, 20 feet long. Our goal is to have this in regions. So potentially, you know, looking at four to five of these mills um, as we build in, in volume so that we can have several different people milling at one time and there's not as much travel involved. Okay. And so just talk about the uh, outcome of the milling a little bit. Is the quality going to be different from you know, in terms of what you guys are producing compared to, you know, whatever somebody would have milled somewhere else? So it depends on where that somewhere else is. Okay. Um, you know, it's it's a pink granite stone mill. Um, we actually are custom fabricating our um, screening system for the grits and corn mill to where we can do it regionally um, down in here in the southeast. We want as many grits as we can get. Um, Cornmeal's good. We still love our cornbread and, and hush puppies, but, you know, grits are king in the South versus, you know, if I come up y'all's way, Iowa, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Kansas, it's more predominantly cornmeal. So we actually have a system set up where, you know, a five-minute time span, we can change out screens and we can go from, you know, 80% grits and 20% cornmeal in the South to, 75% cornmeal and 25% grits, uh, you know, out in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so we're really trying to focus once again on what do we see regionally because we want to feed people on a more local level. And our process is going to be slower than what a commercial meal would be, but somebody could set up a similar process on their farm and, and have, you know, very similar characteristics of their product. But um, we've really built a lot of custom things, um, specifically for this meal that I think would be hard to replicate. Well, and then you're also dealing with the sort of the FDA stuff, all the food safety things for them, right? A- absolutely. Um, the, um, the Kerr Center, um, has, has been an absolute, um, awesome tool for us. Um, we've worked with them on, you know, FDA says your letters have to be so big on your bag, you know, the two pound part of the bag where it says it's a two pound bag has to be in a specific part. Um, you know, 
all the things that are associated with our, even our bag fonts and sizes and, and logo, um, you know, nutritional information, everything that's involved in the bag, you know, that's re- FDA regulated and, you know, where we're testing this at. So we'll, you know, say North Carolina, when I make flour, I'll send it into to the state and they actually test it and make sure that it's meeting our sieve because we are going to have several different sieved and extracted types of flowers. So to make sure that our standard is, is actually where it's supposed to be at, how we're marketing it. Um, so, you know, there is a, there is a step to it, but, um, you know, for me and, and everybody else involved so far, we, we all believe that it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I wanted to ask about the, the name of this, you're calling it Regen Mills. Are you requiring farmers to be uh, practicing regenerative practices? The meal is called Regen Mills, and our brand is called Heritage Ground. Yes, farmers are going to be required to, you know, we haven't set a strict standard that, you know, you have to apply five of the six principles of soil health or you have to apply X, Y, Z. But that is part of our application process to where we are vetting, you know, are you doing cover crops or reduced tillage where it's strip till or no till where you're not tilling at all? Or, you know, or do you have a livestock aspect of it? Um, you know, is there a nutrient management side of it to where we're, you know, monitoring, you know, exactly what kind of inputs and, and chemicals we're using? Um, so we, we do have a verification like through our process of vetting these applications of what practices are they doing? How far along are they on the journey? We are doing testing um, on all the farms that our grains are being grown on just to see, you know, what quality is the soil? You know, is it a healthy soil? Is it a degraded soil? Um, Because that can affect um, a lot of our grain quality. Yeah. And are you doing nutrient density testing on grains or anything like that? So that is um, that has been one of our key topics. Um, Everybody talks about nutrient density testing. And the funny thing about nutrient density testing are there's so many nutrients to test for. You know, somebody says they're doing nutrient density testing. Well, you know, they could be just testing for A, B and C, um, which is cheap and easy and really may not have any, you know, health implications or you know tests can be very expensive and um you know take quite a bit of time to get the results back and you could test for x y and z on the complete opposite end of the spectrum so we're really trying to nail down on you know we focus on soil health but we also focus on consumer health and healthy foods make healthy people so we're trying to figure out exactly what we want to test for um, and, and how that would directly impact our customers and, and their, their health. So can you just walk through the economics for a farmer, what they would experience in working with Regen Mills in terms of, you know, I don't know, what sort of different profit structure or income structure could they expect to see compared to what they're used to in working with a regular, you know, when they cart off their grains to an elevator? So I guess, you know, the easiest scenario for me is corn. A lot of people understand corn production. A farmer grows out and, you know, let's just say he's a conventional farmer and he grows a traded corn variety, has a burn down, didn't utilize regenerative practices and, you know, maybe made a, a post application, maybe a fungicide pass, you know, this year 
huge news stories all over the place was this tar spot issue up in the I States. So, you know, now they're looking at, you know, at least a one pass of fungicide. And at the end of the day, with land rent, input prices, you know, this year with a, a, a world energy crisis going on, fertilizer prices absolutely through the roof. Say that farmer raises, we'll be gracious and call it 250 bushel corn. Okay. And, and let's just say commodity prices stay high and that farmer gets $5.25 a bushel. Well, their, their gross return on that acre at 250 bushels of corn at $5.25 is roughly $1,300 an acre. Well, their cost, their cost of production was probably at least at a minimum, I'd say close to $700 an acre. So the farmer makes 600 bucks. You don't typically hear about farmers making $600 an acre. So that's a very high number. It's probably less than that. But once again, we're going to give them the competitive edge. Say that same farmer decides, I want to grow an acre of Reed's Yellow Dent or Bloody Butcher or Jimmy Red or any of the other heirloom corns. And we know that they can do 100 bushels to the acre. We've seen them do more. We've seen them do less. But typical production, we could get 100 bushels an acre. So that farmer grows one acre of heirloom corn. He makes 100 bushels. He harvests that grain, goes through the application process, sends it off for a test, calls up the mill and says, hey, I want to grind all of this up into grits and cornmeal. Out of the 5,600 pounds of corn, which is what 100 bushels should weigh, we're going to get roughly about 2,400 pounds of grits, 2,400 pounds of cornmeal, and, you know, the other 800 pounds is what we call the tailings, which they can feed back to livestock feed. They can put it out for wildlife. It's essentially the, the enamel from the corn and all the stuff that we, we, we clean up the corn through the sifting process for the consumer. So there is a little bit of waste, but not much. So we're still at, we're still at 4,800 pounds of product. And this, this could vary, you know, like I said, based on geographics. But we're going to sell that. Just say the farmer sells it direct and, you know, we're getting $5 a pound for it. So their gross is going to be $24,000, but there is a milling cost and there is a bagging cost. Mm -hmm. So out of that $24,000, their milling and bagging cost should run them roughly about $5,500. Okay. So, you know, take your cost of production for that, you know, cost of production for 100 bushel corn should be way less than 250 bushel corn. So let's just say that that cost them 500 an acre plus the milling fee off of the 24,000 would roughly put them somewhere between 17,000 and $18,000 an acre net. And that's if they direct sell it. So if they go and make a lot of sales through the e-commerce then we do have to charge for the e-commerce fees, which is probably going to put them down in the ballpark of about thirteen dollars to $14,000 net. That's a whole lot better than I'd rather have 12000 than six hundred. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and like I said, we even gave the conventional corn, you know, how many farmers are really going to make $600 an acre? My point is we try to give them at least a little bit of advantage, but it's nowhere close. It's not even in the same galaxy. So, so a farmer doesn't have to grow 100 acres of product to see a good return on investment. 
and wheat is not as good. So like whole wheat flour after cost of production, if a farmer made 60 bushel wheat, they pay for the milling and bagging. They're still looking to make somewhere between about three to $5,000 an acre. And then we have the extracted wheats, which do get a higher premium for the bakeries. And, you know, the net income would increase with that. Well, that certainly sounds like um, a much better business model than than the traditional. Well, I, I think that's one of the things that we've really tried to focus on in the beginning. Uh, Sarah and Liz have really tried to keep this as level-headed as we could. And we're not asking any farmer out there to go plant 100 acres. You know, typically we're telling farmers this year, plant five, maybe 10 acres. Some farmers, you know, that they definitely are people that like to gamble. And a couple of farmers are like, I'm, I'm putting 50 acres in and that's fine. But we're trying to be very realistic that while we're building this and while we're getting, you know, brand awareness and working with these larger companies um, to, to get a higher volume that, you know, this is something that's going to have to have to move up in, in a slow fashion to where farmers are seeing a, a good benefit, but they're not hedging their whole farm thinking they're going to sell a thousand acres of wheat flour. You know, it's, it's not going to be something that big off the bat. So are you doing consulting with farmers in terms of their practices as well, or are you really sticking to the milling side? If they need help, we are definitely offering help. That's like I said, one of the things it's a community effort. Thanks to Russell Hedrick for this introduction to Regen Mills. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.